A venture capitalist shares where he thinks Biden's new AI executive order goes wrong. Will crypto be able to rebuild its brand now that SBF's trial is over? And Ivy League endowments are experiencing their worst year of returns this decade. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. Hey, Venture Daily listener. Did you know we have a newsletter too? You can read our stories every morning now. Find the link in the episode description to sign up right now. It takes 10 seconds. The newsletter is great for when you only have a few minutes to catch up on the news or when you'd prefer to read instead of listen. And if you know anyone who's interested in staying informed about venture capital, tech, and or business news, please share the newsletter with them too. We really appreciate your support. Now to today's news. Last week, President Biden signed an executive order called Safe, Secure, and Trustworthy Artificial Intelligence. It's the first ever federal guardrails given for AI by the United States government, and it's a sweeping order. According to Bruce Reed, the White House Deputy Chief of Staff, this is the, quote, strongest set of actions any government in the world has ever taken on AI safety, security, and trust. But that doesn't mean those actions will necessarily be effective, at least according to Richard DeLude, co-founder and general partner at Underscore VC. Not long after Biden's executive order was announced, DeLude posted on LinkedIn, outlining the things he believes the order got wrong. DeLude writes, quote, The recent order will be looked at as a marquee motion in the history of technology regulation. After a read discussion with some of the smartest folks out there in the AI community today, here's what I surmise they got wrong, and what we could still get right in the decades ahead. DeLude follows that with these three observations. 1. We need to regulate applications of AI, not foundational models. 2. We need to focus on industry-specific evaluations of AI, not general evaluations. And three, we need to ensure that open-source AI has a fair opportunity to succeed by not protecting closed alternatives. Delude ends his post with this, quote, Discrimination, fairness, the muddling of truth, and the right to privacy are all on the front lines of the debate. And what is certain is that bright enterprising founders are going to build products that solve these problems. I wanted to give Richard the chance to elaborate on the thoughts he shared on LinkedIn, so I asked him to join our show. Hey, Richard. Good to connect, Jackson. It's Richard DeLude from Underscore VC, one of the co-founders and general partners. Richard, before we jump into where the executive order goes wrong, can you lay out for us what rules Biden's order actually demands Gen AI companies follow? Yeah, it's an interesting one in that it's um, more broadly speaking of a, a motion and a order that basically says, you know, we're focused on creating a safe, secure and trustworthy environment for artificial intelligence. And I think in some senses, it was just a means to articulate to the world of we're thinking about this. We're trying to be forward. We're trying to be progressive. Um, but beyond that, you know, it does make some interesting overarching commentary that, you know, I personally found pretty interesting and, and uh, unique in its positioning. In your post, you said that we need to regulate applications of AI rather than foundational models. How come? And how should applications of AI be regulated? Yeah, I think that's one of the more interesting pieces of this, which is they put forward this statement that they want to regulate some of the lower level models. And in fact, sort of the size of these models, the amount that it costs to train them and, and kind of going after the, you know, some of the more foundational infrastructure components. And, you know, if I look back to the cloud infrastructure world, that's like saying we want to regulate the cloud as, a low, as opposed to uh, open innovation kind of thrive. And so the way I always think about this is, look, 
let people have all the tools they need, let open innovation thrive. And then what you should do is ultimately regulate the outputs or the application level of that, not the enabling technology. Like worry about what people do with the cloud, right? Are they going to post, you know, fake images? Or are they going to do something like that? Not necessarily the models that created them uh, at the end of the day. So I, I think coming back to regulating use and applications at the top of the stack as opposed to the lower level enabling componentry, which of course you should all have access to. Why does regulation need to focus on industry-specific evaluations of AI, not general evaluations, in your opinion? It comes back to a similar point, which is that every industry is going to have specific needs for it. And so where the filter should be placed, as I would see it, is actually on the ultimate output that's relevant to that industry, not the underlying, uh, you know, pre-dogging that can happen with some of the underlying models. And one, one idea that I would give you to kind of frame that would be, if you think of credit underwriting, really interesting area, clearly AI is going to be a key component of it. But what you should regulate is the ultimate implications of that credit underwriting and the output of, you know, okay, who's credit worthy and not credit worthy. And that should be done in an industry specific way, done by an industry specific body, as opposed to trying to pull all of that and all these other industries, whether it's, you know, insurance or image generation or all these things that are kind of in these, uh, you know, lower level logic things. So again, I come back to, you're not kind of putting your thumb on the scale at the right place. And so this executive order, I think, is not putting its thumb on the scale in the right place. They're going really deep. And, you know, I, I would argue that really they should be focused more on kind of the, the higher level outputs uh, that, you know, are more industry specific, which is what that statement is. Last question, Richard. Do you think the current demands of Biden's executive order in any way hinder enterprising founders from building products that fight against discrimination and the muddling of truth and fight for fairness and the right to privacy? Yes. I mean, the interesting piece of this, too, is there's kind of this debate, especially if you constrain who can use or innovate the with these models. And so there's this discussion of open source versus closed source. And if you create an order that really benefits the more closed source companies, think of those as the ones developed by the incumbents or some of the new entries, the open AIs of the world. And yet you don't necessarily let some of the open alternatives thrive. What happens then is, you know, it's kind of nice because you have a regulatory choke point. You can really say, these are the companies we're really going to make sure that we control you know, their output. But it basically means everybody has to go through those companies, which reinforces an, an oligopoly. And so when it comes to, uh, you know, very serious things like uh, truth, you're then putting what is uh, determined to be, you know, this is true or not true, and kind of that ultimate uh, fairness and, and right within those companies, which is a few companies managed by a few people and a few uh, individuals at those companies. And, and that just doesn't seem the right approach. If you really want to get to what is you know, uh, an understanding of truth and what, uh, how these models should be managed is let the biggest and broadest audience input into that uh, assessment of, of what is true and what is fair. Um, and so if you only put that in the hands of a few people as opposed to the open public eye and determination, I think you're just going to get ultimately some result that's not going to be where we'd all want to end up. 
Uh, and so that's why I'm, I'm personally a very strong advocate of open source AI as opposed to you know, really protecting some of these closed alternatives. And, and I understand why the order kind of goes that way. And the reason it's, you know, it's much easier to regulate a few companies as it is, as opposed to regulating kind of this big, broad, open innovation um, where in some senses, you know, it can be also used in a, a nefarious way as well. That was Richard DeLude, co-founder and general partner at Underscore VC. Richard, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for taking the time. Likewise. No, good to connect. The Sam Bankman free trial is over. He's been found guilty on seven counts of fraud, and FTX is gone. So, where does that leave crypto's legacy? Whether or not it's fair, the collapse of cryptocurrency exchange FTX was a PR nightmare for crypto at large. When billions of dollars are stolen by a fraudulent company, everything touching that company can't help but be stained with its scarlet ink. And crypto markets felt the pain of the FTX scandal. Billions of dollars were lost, the market's valuation fell below $1 trillion, investors were deterred from entering the space, and the SEC even pursued regulatory action across the industry. But now that SBF's trial is over, and it's been made clear that fraud will not be tolerated in the industry, can crypto rebuild its reputation? For more on that, I spoke with Ian Rogers. Uh, Hi, my name is Ian Rogers, and I'm the chief experience officer at a Paris-based company called Ledger. Ledger is a crypto security company. Ian, obviously the biggest damage FTX did to crypto markets was about a year ago, when it came out that the company was stealing billions of dollars. But what does the recent news of a guilty verdict for SPF on all seven counts of fraud mean for the market? Is this a nail in the coffin condemnation for crypto, or more of a welcome sign as it is finally time to start moving past the stain left on the industry by the fraud of SPF? Well, I think if you look at the way that crypto has gone um, for the past 15 years, and we are at the 15-year anniversary of the, the Bitcoin white paper, you see lots of ups and downs. You know, you see, you see Mt. Gox, you see the, the ICO boom and bust, et, et cetera. So um, this fits pretty squarely into one of those. I mean, the SBF, um, you know, sort of debacle uh, from, you know, the realization to now the conviction is, is in some ways bookends on the, the bear market. You know, for Ledger, you know, we sell self-custody um, devices that are, you know, high security. And in November, when FTX, when FTX crashed, um, we had our best sales month in the history of the company because we, we are literally that flight to safety, the flight away from somebody else holding onto your crypto and to you, the individual, holding onto your crypto. But when that happened, I knew it was going to be, you know, good in the short term, fine in the long term, and really tough in the midterm. And it turns out that, you know, I was right about, about that prediction because what happened is, you know, new people weren't coming into the space. I think what you see now, though, is financial institutions really waking up to um, the value of, of these assets, particularly Bitcoin, and also I would say crypto dollars or stable coins to some degree, and people really understanding the use case for both. So I think this is the beginning of the, the next run. How does crypto go about redeeming its image in the eyes of investors who are wary to be burned again? Well, I think that, you know, hopefully there's a bit of a lesson here that, you know, FTX was actually a solid company that that made money. And it was the other things that Sam Bankman-Fried did that that got him into trouble. You know, if you look at what actually happened and what you talk talk about was in this case, um, it wasn't about crypto. It was about fraud. Um, You know, you give someone money and then they do something with it behind the scenes and then the money is gone. That's not crypto. That's not what crypto is. In fact, you know, for Ledger, we always say, you know, if not self-custody, why crypto? And, you know, the, the common saying inside of crypto is not your keys, not your coins. And so I think, unfortunately, you know, FTX represents a lot of people learning that very true lesson the hard way. 
you know, what you have is you have um, sort of new ways of storing value. Uh, you know, I think that we're all kind of amazed uh, by human greed. We shouldn't be, but, but we often are. Um, and, you know, I think that this isn't really a story about crypto at all. It's a story about, about greed and mismanagement and huge risk taking. Uh, so I, I think it's, you know, I think hopefully there's a lesson here where, you know, people who watched the soap opera of the trial the, the way that I did or, or listened to it on podcasts, um, they, they kind of understand that, you know, more deeply. And I think it coincides with something like Lynn Alden's great new book, Broken Money, where people can understand you know, the, the value of, um, you know, scarce assets that move at the, at the speed of light and technology the way that Bitcoin does. So I, I think that, that, you know, this is, you know, just another cycle in the peeling of the onion of understanding exactly what, um, you know, what, what, what's possible with, uh, with digital value. Last question, Ian. In your opinion, is there still a bright future ahead for investments into digital currency and blockchain technology? I think that's like somebody asking me in the year 2000 or 2001, you know, do I think this internet thing is going to be big? Um, you know, we had just experienced the dot-com crash and yes, I believed the internet was going to be big. I was in digital music for 20 years and I had this very unpopular view uh, in 2000, 2001, 2002, that the future of music would be subscription and it would cost somewhere between five and $10 a month. And I spent, you know, the next 15 years you know, building those solutions for Yahoo, Beats, Apple, and, you know, it was a long road, but in the end, it was indeed the future of music. So I think it's very similar here. We've, you know, the, we're looking at, uh, you know, an internet of value as opposed to an internet of information. Um, you know, we will certainly have digital ownership in the lives of humans. You know, because of that, you know, things like security and self-custody will be important. Um, and security will be important you know, not only on the consumer side, but also on uh, on the custody side. In other words, if you are keeping your money with a custodian, such as FTX, and you know, you might be in a place like Coinbase or Kraken or, or something like that, you know, you should really have a question of what is the security that solution is using, and um, and you know, what is what are those um, you know entries in the database backed by? If I want to pull them out tomorrow, do I risk a run on the bank? If you hold, say, Bitcoin in a ledger wallet, you don't risk a run on the bank. Like literally, FTX is not possible. And on the on the ledger enterprise side, you know that's what we aim to do. Um, you know, for for custodians and and you know other players that hold value on on behalf of their customers. So there's no question that you know we will have you know digital value in the future. When I pay at the at the local pharmacy, I won't be using you know, credit rails, I'll be using digital cash. My identification, my passport ultimately will be a digital document and the way that I move borders will be by, you know, proving I am the owner of the wallet that contains that digital document that proves my identity. So digital ownership um, in, a, in a ton of ways will be a huge part of the lives of future humans. Just like in 2000 or 2001, it was safe to say that the internet and an email address would be a big part of, a, of the lives of future humans, even though you'd find many people who didn't believe that and many people who thought that video over the internet would never be possible, et cetera. Um, in that same way, it's not only possible and it's inevitable. Um, you know, the thing that we can't predict is, you know, exactly what does that mean? You know, what does, uh, you know, kind of a Bitcoinized world look like? Um, I don't think we can predict that any more than in the year 2000 or 2001, we would have predicted that the internet would in some ways lead to Donald Trump becoming president. Um, so I think that this is, you know, it's, 
it's you know more than uh, likely. It's it's in fact inevitable. But what we can't predict, predict is you know exactly the role that digital ownership plays in our lives 15 and 20 years from now. That was Ian Rogers, Chief Experience Officer at Ledger. Really appreciate your time today, Ian. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. This year, Ivy League University endowments are seeing their worst returns of the past decade. According to PitchBook data, the average performance of an Ivy League school saw a 2.1% return on its investment in fiscal year 2023. Columbia's endowment performed the best with the 4.7% returns, and Princeton's performed the worst with negative 1.7%. For reference, the average performance of an Ivy League school over the last 10 years is 11.1%. Endowment fund returns reflect the declines we're seeing across private markets, and the reasons for both seem to be the same. High interest rates, evaluation correction after 2021, and general economic uncertainty. And these adversities don't show signs of reversing soon. Ivy League institutions are doubtful to begin seeing significant returns on their investment again in the near future. In an interview with PitchBook's Jessica Hamlin, Matt Bank, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Global Endowment Management, says that, quote, there's a scenario whereby public markets start to recover over the next 18 to 24 months, though it seems unlikely to me that private investments, particularly in VC, will drive portfolio returns, unquote. As 2024 approaches, endowment returns will also depend on how well public markets perform, as these endowments typically allocate about 20% of their capital to public investments. PitchBooks Hamlin believes that, quote, if the PE and VC dealmaking and exit environments don't improve in 2024 and public market volatility persists, endowment returns could remain paltry for the foreseeable future. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all tomorrow morning.